Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone Season 2, Episode 51, and that's how I spent my summer vacation, where we will be looking at Chapters 106 and 107 of The Wise Man's Beer through the lens of all grown up. Before we begin, an explanation of the pod. Each week, or every other week, we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will then share a phronemos, which still isn't written in the thing that I read off... <laughs> every time oops and then share a recommended thing of the week and finally wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives and there is a disclaimer and a spoiler warning before we begin let's get some disclaimers out of the way first of all we are in no way affiliated with patrick roth as or publisher of books secondly we are more than two-thirds of the way through the wise man's fear and we will be spoiling everything that came before it and maybe some things that come after as well as side stories, almost certainly. Any whoozle. Needless to say, beyond this point, there will be spoilers. And a word to our community. Please be kind to yourselves, one another's. One another's? Sorry. Please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love to explore. All right, time to explain ourselves on our lens this time. So this is kind of a homecoming episode. One of many. <laughs> This is Quoth returning back to the mortal world changed. And in many ways, like it's not just that he has reached sexual maturity or anything like that. It is also that he has, in dealing with the Cathay, grappled with some deep existential crap. And he also has a beard now. Well, he has a beard that a 16-year-old can grow. As far as we know, yeah. He doesn't really specify its thickness. No. But apparently he can run his hand through it. I don't know. I think that that particular turn of phrase is more of a literary thing than a practical thing. Because, like, unless your beard is actually, like, pretty decently long, you're really not doing that. Probably not, no. Like, my old game teacher at my old college, he could actually run his hand through his beard, or rather his goatee, because it went down to his chest. But... If you've just got like little scraggles. Or even you just have it neatly trimmed. This is also true. I'm trying to get at, Will, can you run your hand comfortably through your beard where it feels like you're running your hand through your beard and it's not awkward? No, no. I just watched you try. It was funny. That's probably a turn of phrase. But like I said, he does actually now have facial hair, which is a bit of a difference. You know, he doesn't know how long he's been gone for. I mean, like, the crucial thing is he doesn't know how long he was gone subjectively. He also doesn't know how long he was gone from the perspective of other people. Though this is our second chapter of the episode, so probably best to get to that later. I would say that a lot of the first chapter in this episode deals with his emotional maturity. So why don't we get started by talking about that? We open up with chapter 106 returning with Kvoth nursing some psychic wounds from his encounter with the Cathay and Florian's rather haphazard attempts to care for him. Kvoth is very clearly in a depression from a pure writing perspective or pure page count perspective. It doesn't seem like it's that long of a period of time for this, but he might be just truncating everything down. He slept a great deal. He had endless nightmares. And though he found the nightmares distressing, he found it worse to wake up with no memory, but just to be crying uncontrollably. He finds himself crying over things that aren't sad. He finds it difficult for him to even put into words what he's feeling. And the only thing that Florian can understand is that he's in pain. And it's clear that she doesn't know what to do with this. Quoth says, I expected her to murmur softly to me and stroke my hair as Ari did so many months ago. Because Ari knows the same kind of pain, more than likely. Or at least some form of emotional pain that needs 
discomfort where Florian has not felt those feelings. That isn't what she exists for. It's not part of her alien psychology. She just simply does not have those experiences or those particular emotions. All she knows is that Kvoth is in distress and she doesn't know what she's supposed to do. So she tries her best to give him something pleasurable. And some of the things that she provides him with are kind of whimsical in, in their description. Like it, it feels like there are times when, you know, Sokka, our cat, can tell that one of us is in distress he doesn't know why and so all he knows to do is like bring us a random toy and drop it in our faces as if this is supposed to make us feel better because he doesn't know what else to do it kind of feels like that because <laughs> he knows that makes us laugh yeah i mean because she brings him like this weird stone egg that hatches into a squirrel that yells at him and runs away you know she gives him like this weird multi-layered melon that is sweet and citrusy and then you get to the seed and then that's nutty and then inside the seed is like this salty sweet gummy thing like all of these kind of whimsical things that ordinarily would be oh wow that's wild oh ha 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 like one time she left him alone for endless hours only to return with two brown birds one carefully cupped in each hand and that they were smaller than sparrows with striking leaf green eyes. Okay, representative of Quoth? Well, and like Quoth, they sing these beautiful songs, and not like songbird songs, but actual melodies with harmonies, and like all of these things that are fantastical and whimsical. And, you know, she's like, this, surely this will make him smile. Surely this will ease his pain. She is clearly distressed by the fact that he is in such trauma. But she's kind of like she's at a loss and almost doing the neurodivergent little penguin pebbling. It has a little bit of that feel like, here, look at this thing I got you. It made me think of you. Here, look at this weird thing that caught my eye that I thought was neat. Yeah, there's a little of that. And I can definitely empathize with that and... Because you know, there have been times when friends and partners are going through distress and I don't know how to relate to it. And so all I can do is just, here I brought you a thing. Here I thought of a thing. Ah. Surely this will make you feel better. At least a little bit, right? I don't like seeing you in pain. What can I do? Here have a random leaf that I found on the ground. Here's a stuffed animal that I thought would be really funny. You know, like all of that sort of thing. This is kind of how I have both a Squishmallow unicorn that is pink with stars all over it, which typically, let's just be honest here, pink is not my thing, but it's one of my favorite stuffies. And how there is a distressing looking ice wolf, <laughs> little statue thingy that is now in your office space because I don't want it. But you're like, eh? <laughs> what we're saying is that I sometimes have weird ideas about what might cheer you up. Yeah, you're getting better at knowing what will cheer me up. Also, the ice wolf does cheer me up just because it was so ridiculous. Well, once I saw how ridiculous it was, I really just had to lean into the bit and... <laughs> really commit to it and i think that kind of came through the other side mm -hmm. like right now i'm grinning so much that my cheeks hurt because i'm thinking about it yeah the easter ice wolf that's the traditional thing yes <laughs> oh but yeah through all of this it's really more than anything at least as far as both can determine it's time that heals for him emotional damage oftentimes does take time to work through and i wouldn't say it's so much time it's time and his mind spending all of that time grappling with it processing exactly and that processing period is not comfortable it is not easy it is not happy but it's necessary it's a lot of confronting the core 
thing that is wrong. Like on occasion, one or either of us will be angry for no apparent reason or sad for no apparent reason or something that is said or that we've seen or heard on like a piece of media will make us sad and like distressed and it will stick with us. But that piece of media isn't the thing that made us sad. There is something at the core of what made us sad that we need to then process and think through. And in this case, Quoth's encounter with the Cathay reopened some really deep wounds for him surrounding his parents that he had mostly just repressed and had gotten by with by just not thinking about. And mind you, it happened four years previous. That's about how long we've been doing this podcast. I know. And yeah, he's spent four years repressing this and doing everything in his power to not think about it and to turn it into a problem to be solved as opposed to an emotion to be dealt with. And the Cathay ripped that scar tissue open like it was made out of paper. Meanwhile, the Cathay also confronted Quoth with his deepest fears about Denna and her patron. And not only did the Cathay confront Quoth with those harsh truths, made Quoth feel like Denna's suffering was his fault. Because deep down, I believe he thinks that his parents' suffering was his fault. He has so much survivor's guilt. And he's got a fresh batch of it with Denna now. All of this, of course, is the Cathay giving him main character syndrome. <laughs> he thinks that it's all about him because he's telling the story. Obviously, he believes that. You know, not recognizing that, one, Denna's made her own choices. And two, Denna's patron has made his own choices that he's responsible for. None of those things necessarily have anything to do with Quoth. And so as Quoth does process things, he slowly recovers enough to flirt with Fullerian. And the relief from Fullerian is palpable because as Quoth puts it, it was as if she couldn't relate to a creature that did not want to kiss her. And to be fair to her, she's never had that experience. That's just an unfamiliar concept for her. And you know, she's someone who lives in the moment, in bliss, in pleasure, almost purely hedonistically. So to see someone in that anhedonic state, incapable of experiencing joy or pleasure or happiness, it's really distressing to her she feels like like when you're used to something being consistent and then it gets taken away then sometimes you get into that state of like well is this going to be like this forever now especially if it doesn't just bounce right back and you know she just doesn't have that concept she doesn't know if this is just an episode or if this is going to be a chronic condition if this is just going to be the way he is now, if he's irreparably broken, she has no way of conceptualizing that. Because how could she? This is unfamiliar to her. To get back to the plot of the story rather yeah. than the emotions, which I do think are very important. Quoth asks how her process of making the shade worked out. And she is just so happy, so, so happy to actually have A, a different topic of conversation. And B, to show off her own things that she has made for him. She is just like, I made this thing and it's amazing. And, 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 and here, and this is, you know, or more accurately, can you find it? I think part of it is she's excited to see Quoth showing those signs of his old self and also taking an interest in the gifts that she's giving him. That is true. There is something to be said about being around someone who has lost the desire to do the things that had previously brought them joy and not know how to fix it and feeling like everything that you're trying to do to fix it just makes it worse. But there's also something very joyful and sweet and somewhat silly about Valorian's just exuberance over I made you this thing and now you're interested in it. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, like 
all of these fantastical things that she's shown him and up to this point all he's been able to muster is eh. and finally he's excited about this truly wondrous thing it means that things are as they should be or at least as close to as they should be as they can be and as Quoth takes this boon from her he kind of recognizes this is the end of a chapter he says it felt like wearing a warm breeze and he describes his new cloak his shade as being nearly weightless and softer than the richest velvet for the love of all that is holy quoth this one you don't lose <laughs> his instant reaction is i want to know how i look in it i want to go to the pool and see it and florian is just so happy that he likes it that she jumps him well and then she says and then i want you to think of me when you feel it against you which I mean, I get it. Like, there are times when you make something for me, like a scarf or something, and then when I wear it, I feel like I'm wearing a hug from you. Same thing with the weird little unicorn squishmallow thingy. Like, would I have picked it? No. Do I really love hugging it? Yes. Is it allowed anywhere near Sokka? No. Because he would ruin it. Yeah, I mean, that's that goes without saying. So, like, when you were sick with covid and i couldn't really hug you i wanted to have that one be the one that i kept as a like you know yes i am 41 years old but i wanted that to be kind of my substitute hug from you for the evenings and i couldn't because Sokka sleeps in bed with us or with me at that point yeah i know and so i had to get one that i didn't mind him kind of messing with and to date he hasn't yet messed with it but yeah like you can tell that there's a bit of a bittersweetness to this as he's going back to the mortal world he's been in basically vacation mode for untold days weeks months maybe even years and so leaving all of that behind is a challenge for him this is true also though he has promised to come back. And it's unclear if he intends to honor that promise. Or if he's already honored that promise. I kind of wonder, since Noir is not on the map that we get at the beginning of both of our books, I'm sure it's on a map somewhere, and I'm sure that this has already been debunked, but it would be interesting if Noir was kind of like a pocket of this is where all of the mortal people who wander into the Fae live. Maybe, although, like, if that were the case, Bast wouldn't necessarily have to disguise his true nature. No, he would, though, because if it's a pocket kind of space where all of the mortal people think that it's still the Four Corners, anyone that was Fae would be breaking the illusion if they just walked in in their normal everyday visage. I'm just saying it's possible that I am off my rocker. And if we go look at our actual map of the Four Corners and not look at the map that is currently at the beginning of the two books that we have the physical copies of, or even possibly if it exists in a different map on the digital version, then I am completely wrong. But I do think that the Inn at the Waystone is probably situated near a gravestone which is probably a doorway into the fey tbd so as quoth re-enters the mortal world he is constantly finding himself tempted to look back at felurian as he leaves which he does once it's basically sort of a later bye and he knows that if he looks back again he probably is gonna go back and never leave Vacation mode is hard to kick. Somehow I kept walking, and when I looked back the second time, she was gone. Now, also, this is the first time that he has worn his clothes in a very long time, and it feels weird. Yeah, like I say, he's been vacationing at an all-inclusive nude beach. <laughs> Not to the same extent, but like, it feels weird when you go from it's clearly summertime, and I'm in shorts and a t-shirt all the time. Or if your clothes that you sleep in are like shorts and you go back to actual pajamas or when you realize that you're cold in the morning and you need to put a sweatshirt on. Like 
one of the things I observed is it's the difference between wearing just pajama pants and sweatpants and then going back to wearing jeans. That too. Suddenly you have to think about these things that are designed with stuff that's more than just immediate comfort in mind. Like I didn't wear shoes for a long time during the lockdown. Right, because we weren't going out. You weren't going anywhere. I may have worn flip-flops or sandals to just go out and get the mail or to walk around the neighborhood a little bit, but I wasn't like going out to grocery stores or going out to a workplace or going somewhere else. And I still have yet to wear like nice shoes. I have worn tennis shoes, but I have not put things like dress shoes on since forever ago. I mean, yeah, I haven't worn dress shoes since 2019. And even then, like... Because, <laughs> like, we're not going to weddings, we're not going to parties, to anything. Yeah, and I work in a place where dressing casually is the expectation. Supreme casualness rules. <laughs> and now, on to chapter 107, fire. So, we kind of flash forward a little bit. Kvoth makes his way to the Pennysworth Inn, which... As we will recall, that's the inn at Crossan where they've been using as their kind of base camp for their bandit hunting expedition. Say who they are. Uh, Kvoth, Martin, Hespa, Daydan, and Tempe. So as Kvoth approaches, the lights are on, but it's quiet. Like he doesn't hear any music or laughter or singing or any of the things that he's come to associate with this inn. Or with any inn he immediately jumps to the most catastrophic conclusions. Because that's Kvoth. And it's what his life has frankly conditioned him to believe. True. There must have been some sort of attack. This is probably the immediate aftermath of a catastrophe. Something has gone wrong. But as he creeps up and kind of listens in, he realizes it's actually not. It's actually something that's fairly familiar to him. And that is Martin sitting by the fire telling a story. Kvoth's story. This is Martin telling the story of the last time he saw Kvoth, which means that this can't have been more than a few days after they lost him. So they're telling the story of Kvoth running after Felurian and disappearing into the wild. And the audience is absolutely wrapped by this. And I, I think part of this is a testament to the fact that Martin is a pretty good storyteller. He knows how to get people's attention, how to really grab their imaginations. And what I found actually really interesting about this was we see growth here, not just from Quoth, but also from Tempe and Hespa and Daydan. So Tempe actually speaks audibly. This is something that he's only ever done historically around Kvoth and the others. Now he's feeling comfortable enough to actually contribute. You know, he has that little sentence where he's like, I was trained <laughs> to resist all sorts of urges. And then he makes a little joke about it. And then he says, if Kvoth had not gone to her, I would have. And it's a little flourish that contributes to the story that Martin is weaving here. It is adding to its veracity. And then everyone's like, well, what about Daydan? And then Martin's like, well, Hespa had something to do with that. And then we cut to Hespa and Daydan canoodling together. Canoodling insofar as also Hespa has her hand protectively over Daydan's knee. There is some implied violence, which doesn't make me terribly happy. And I don't find it to be cute. Yeah. I mean, part of it is these are two people who solve problems with their fists. And then the piece de resistance. Martin talks about how all they could find was his cloak. It was caught up in a tree. And if it had been made of sturdier stuff, maybe he'd still be with them. Quoth recognizes now is the time to make an entrance. And then he steps in and says, but I found a better one. <laughs> because of course that's exactly how that story goes, because... You always make that amazing choice of your entrance like that. I don't know. Maybe. So everyone's kind of gasping. And then suddenly it makes this story seem kind of incredulous, right? And at that point, that's when 
the fiddler who'd been hired to provide music, who's been basically sulking this whole time. I can imagine why. He's been paid to play. He's been paid to entertain, and his spot has been usurped. I mean, even if he's getting a flat fee, if he's not playing, he's not getting tips. And first thing he does is he starts poking holes in all of this. Like, wait a minute, anybody could say that. You guys are just pulling my leg here. The Fey folk haven't been around for years. Nobody's seen them in God knows how long. All the sort of general skepticism that you would expect. You know, this actually makes Daydan fairly angry. It makes Kvothe angry. It makes Daydan angry because for all intents and purposes, the Fiddler is calling Daydan a liar. And if there's one thing that Daydan gets really defensive of is when he's actually telling the truth and someone disbelieves him. Daydan strikes me as the sort of person who is not really a liar, but he's often a fool. He can deal with people telling him he's wrong. You may vehemently disagree with it, but he can accept that. I don't know. I kind of disagree with that. He gets angry about that, but he doesn't get furious the way he does if he's being called a liar. And he's already sitting there with his arm in a sling, which, again, with the implied violence, turns out is not necessarily having to be implied, because according to Dedan, both he and Hespa broke his arm together, because... He attempted with a lot of force to go after Valorian, and Hespa, with a lot of force, kept him from doing so. A few little things before we get too much further into the back and forth about liar, no liar, this yeah. is real, all that. There are some things that Kvoth does say. To reiterate, he feels out of place in his own skin. He doesn't like wearing boots. He doesn't like wearing clothes. For another thing, his frame of reference on things like consent and things like social mores is completely gone. It's just, it's gone. His attention is grabbed by a woman that is over in the corner kind of questioning this tale. And his first instinct is, why am I not kissing this lady? Oh, wait, she's with her husband. I probably shouldn't, but why shouldn't I? I don't understand why I shouldn't just go up and kiss this lady, but I shouldn't. And so his better angels win, but at the same time, like me, he's also, it seems like, a hair's breadth away from just disrobing himself, like flashing everybody. And one of the things that stood out to me, looking around the room again, everything seemed terribly ridiculous. The people sitting on their benches, wearing layers and layers of clothing, eating with knives and forks, it all struck me as so pointless and contrived. And the reason this stood out to me, when you think about the pandemic and about lockdown specifically, and about how everyone is kind of thrown into this completely different set of social standards, it strikes me as really funny that as soon as we could go back to things as normal, we did go back to things as normal, including things that aren't better. There are a lot of jobs that we discovered can easily be done work from home. And a lot of companies are forcing people to come back and work in an office, even those that moved to a place with a lower cost of living so that they could have a better life and still have their job, that they are doing just fine telecommuting. Also, not for nothing, bras still exist. It is still expected for people with breasts to wear a bra when they're in public. And it still feels awkward not to. Like the most unrealistic thing to me at all about The Last of Us is when things aren't being manufactured any longer, especially things like clothing items and things made of elastic or spandex or anything that is like shapewear that bras still exist and that people are still required by social norms to wear them. I think part of it is also when we think of that distinction between civilization and the state of nature, the whole idea about civilization is that it is a set of constraints. It is friction within just daily life where we accept constraints to achieve certain things. Kvothe has been living in a friction-free environment for 
who knows how long. Like he doesn't know. He's been living without any concern for social norms, for mores, for ethics. Like he's been living in a completely amoral scenario. Like even as Florian seems like bore him no ill will, right? She still kind of just whatever she wants, she takes. She could have killed him. Yeah. And Quoth adopted that kind of ethos himself. Whatever he wanted, he took because it was there for the taking. And there is something kind of childlike about that. And it's also completely different from just normal society. Like he was basically living, like I said, in an all-inclusive nude beach where anything he wanted was there for him to do or take, take. to enjoy as he saw fit. There was nothing ever telling him no. So all of those things about the social contract that we have, like how to treat other people, how to deal with consent, none of that was something that he'd been thinking of. He'd basically had all of that social conditioning that we normally have built up over time effectively brainwashed away from him. Because that's really what Florian was doing. It's brainwashing. Over time, just wearing away at all of those sort of contrived ideas about how we act with other people. Yeah, those are contrived, they are constructed, and that does not make them any less real. It just means that they aren't things that necessarily come naturally to us. And so suddenly Kvothe is forced here to adhere to parts of the social contract that he's gotten used to ignoring. Wearing clothes? Ew. Boots? Who needs them? Consent? It doesn't occur to him that someone wouldn't want to be kissing him. That just isn't what he's been brainwashed into. He gets a chance to talk to Hespa and Dedan briefly. And Hespa tries to be tactful and said, we thought you were lost. And Quoth corrects her gently and just says, no, you thought I was gone. You thought that I was dead. Here's a great list of my achievements that you are aware of. Why did you think that Valorian would be the death of me? Oh, yeah. No modesty there. Nope. But back to our fiddler friend. He says things like, The fair folk have left this place behind, and you are no Taberlin. No matter what your friends say, I'm guessing that you're just a clever storyteller hoping to make a name for himself. And Quoth actually now has some self-awareness that I think is earned. And his thoughts are, well, that's pretty close to the mark and I don't like it. I'm in this picture and I don't like it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then people point out, but he's got a beard. He didn't have that before. And the fiddler's like, I wasn't here before. I don't know this guy. Totally fair. But he wants to find reasons to be skeptical. And he continues doubting everybody's account. And he wants the storytellers to shut up, be quiet, listen to the songs, and pay him. He wants everybody in the end to just ignore this whole thing and agree with him. And guys, this is obviously fake and bunk and whatever the heck. Leave it alone. They're not worth our time. And that's when a fight almost breaks out. And Kvothe steps in front of Dedan. Again, Kvothe the Protector, all of 16 years old. In front of the adults. I get that, yes, a 16-year-old in this society is more akin to perceived as adult-ish than a 16-year-old that I have met, like, now. Like, looking at a 16-year-old now, and I'm like, you can drive. Legally drive. Um, you are tiny. All that said, we do get a sense of some of Kvothe's newfound maturity here with how he handles Daydan. Instead of berating Daydan or you know, condescending to him, he points out, hey, dude, you already got one arm in a sling. This isn't worth it. <laughs> Specifically, if he gets a hold of your broken arm, you'll just scream and piss yourself in front of Hespa. We don't want that. No one wants that. So Dedan leaves, but he's not happy about it. And the proprietor, Penny, comes up and she's like, no fighting in my inn. I don't want to hear it. No one fights. And the fiddler's just like, I was just trying to get him to stop lying. And it's not my fault he took it all personal. It puts in stark contrast this adult who is being defensive and 
childish rather than childlike, childish against Quoth, who is like, hey, no, none of that. We don't need that. Nah, stop it. Everyone grow up. This isn't worth a fight. Because remember, it's as much Quoth's integrity that's being called into question as it is Daydan's. And when Quoth was younger, this is the sort of thing that might have set him off. And here he's able to take a step back and say, oh, look, I can tell you all sorts of crazy things you wouldn't believe me if I have told you. And then, to break the tension, someone sees his cloak move of its own volition. I love this. It's just the wind. And they're like, there is no wind. <laughs> also, we're inside. Right. And then Penny touches it. It's like, this feels really soft. This is strange. What is it? It's pure shadow stuff. Valorian made it for me. The Fiddler, of course, just kind of goes, oh, <laughs> kind of the way that we've done that, too. When we talk about some of the things that are clearly just boastful bullshit. Like there is a way that the Fiddler could have earned his keep and also maybe not been an absolute asshole. So like he could have started doing sort of an extemporaneous soundtrack to the story, you know, when there's tension, he ratchets it up with his violin, you know, with the string arrangements. He could have made happy sounds when there's happy things happening. You know, he could have added some drama to it if he really wanted to. Yes. You'd think someone who was immersed in song would be happy to indulge in metaphor, even if he disbelieves the accuracy or the realism. I mean, here's the other thing, like... Tavern stories are not exactly things that you're going to to get Pulitzer level journalism. You're there mostly because is this an entertaining story? Yes or no. And is it true is like a distant fourth concern. <laughs> if even that high on the priority list. Accurate. <laughs> and Penny recognizes Quoth and is like, wait, 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 wait. You're the kid that Losai just embarrassed the sure. shit out of, aren't you? Loci, Loci, I'm not sure which. I know the audio production is Loci. I'll go ahead and say Loci from now. Okay. Loci comes up. The description again of her is bright red curls and green eyes, which is weirdly specifically very similar to Kvothe, and I don't like it. <laughs> because there's implications here of genetics, and I hate it. I just want to think that maybe Patrick Rothfuss has a thing for redheads and then we're good. Green-eyed redheads. I mean, I like green-eyed redheads too. Ditto. So I think that that's a fantasy trope and I'm going to go with that because the other implications are kind of icky. Anyway, Quoth has to stuff down some of this wild laughter that he describes as tumbling around in him because he knows that it will make him look crazy if he lets it out. But he has a different air about him, a different way about him. He's changed in so many ways. And it's not just physical and it's not just his physicality or his sexuality. It's something behind his eyes. Like, let's remember he has, in addition to having just had a lot of fun, he had his encounter with the Cathay, which was a life changing event for him as well. And that adds, I think, some sadness and maturity to him. Like it wasn't just all fun and games. He experienced a very real trauma, not to mention he was forced to confront some of his past traumas in his encounters with Florian. One thing to note here, a lot of people who have childhood trauma are forced to grow up faster and differently than those that have not experienced those traumas. Not to get too deep into things, but after my dad passed and the person who was left, who was ostensibly my parent, looking back at it now was almost certainly pass out drunk every morning. And at 10 years old, I took care of myself well enough to make it to my school bus with a lunch if there was food in the house. I was responsible enough to get to school on time. I was responsible enough to make sure that I didn't starve. I was responsible enough to do my homework without much or any prompting. I had to be self-sufficient. And if I missed the bus, that was on me. 
That was a thing where all through high school, I had to be kind of careful about things. And I did try to walk to school once. It was a very long way and it was uphill and I was not in a good headspace, but I still tried. I think I made it. I may have had a friend's parent pick me up, but this is also in an era before cell phones. So they just kind of saw me and picked me up. There is something different about having to grow up when you're 10 to that degree where other things get stunted. And I believe both A, having to grow up all of a sudden at age 12 after his parents passed and his time in Tarbian. Yes, he is very capable of doing a lot of these things that shouldn't be burdens on children. But I think that it stunted him in other ways. And I think that that is very realistically portrayed. And being confronted with his traumas at 16, four years after stuffing them down, definitely had an effect. Absolutely. And I think he's had some time to do some real healing on this. While he was in the Fae, he could actually take the time to confront all of those wounds and really grapple with them without having to also grapple with just day-to-day -day survival in ways that he's never really had to before. We didn't have to hear about the ledger constantly. Right. He was not thinking about where his next meal would come from. He was not thinking about where he would find shelter or where he would be safe. Or how he would pay for any of such things. It just was provided for him, and he didn't think about it. So he's had a chance to really move beyond just day-to-day -day living and actually spend some time with perhaps his greatest enemy, which is himself, his past. And those things that can't be undone, that can't be fixed, but it's given him a chance to find some sort of closure and renewed purpose. The thing about not being beholden to your cash ledger, money does not buy you happiness. It buys you things. It doesn't buy you happiness. However, it can also buy you a reprieve. For instance, there have been times in my life where going to a grocery store and thinking I would like to buy a box of tea and looking at a box of tea that was $11, that seemed extravagant, exorbitant. It seemed unrealistic for anyone to want to spend $11 on 50 tea bags. Just that was a no. Nope. That is stupid. I will never do that. I will never think that that's a reasonable price because $11 represents a decent amount of my total sum of money in my bank account. And my perspective has shifted as we're now more financially stable to where $11 is still pretty steep for 50 tea bags. I'm not going to lie. That's still a little bit, uh, but now that inflation has gone up, like it's probably more like 15 or 20 bucks for that same thing versus the 12 years ago, 13 years ago that it was when I saw it and thought, no one would do that. Why does it exist? I don't understand. Why is it that expensive? But there is something so freeing about having the ability to just go to a grocery store and not stare at the price tag and worry that it's going to eat up too much of your total funds for you to even consider it. There's something to be said for also just knowing that if you need to deal with something, you can take a day. You have sick time to cover it. You have paid time off. So you will not be hurt financially if you need a day or two or a week even to deal with, you know, just life. Not only that, but two out of three people in the United States report that a $400 unexpected expense would be the difference between them being able to have shelter or not have their home or not. And that shouldn't be the case. That should not ever. But you can't relax and you can't live and you can't take the time to process your trauma if you have to think about, I have to put this item back at the grocery store because I cannot possibly afford this luxury item. Yeah. Point is, a certain amount of financial stability is critical to our ability to actually achieve emotional health and mental health. We think about things like just the cost of being able to go see a therapist, to have someone to talk to, 
to deal with life's challenges. That's not free. That is a privilege. Mm -hmm. And even if you have enough money in the bank budgeted for doing something like that, not everyone works in jobs where they have the same schedule every week so that they can consistently take time to go see said therapist. That's also a challenge. But yeah, all of that is to say having a certain amount of material stability goes a long way towards being able to actually achieve emotional health. And I think that because Quoth didn't have all of these instances of having to penny pinch and keep his ledger, it gave him the time to sit with his traumas. Did it cure him? No. That's not stuff you cure. But also, he didn't have someone around to help him learn healthy ways to process his trauma. He had to rely on himself because Valorian is clueless about these things. But is it better than not touching it? Not looking at it and going, I need to understand and process? This, while not showing him as financially stable, takes away one of those burdens long enough for him to have time for personal growth. And so, yes, he's come back changed. He's come back more confident. He's no longer easily embarrassed or easily wound up. He doesn't feel like he's compensating for anything. He is able to just be himself. And he's able to recognize when he has impulses that he should rein in. Though, in this particular instance, when he's confronted with Losi, there's no need to rein in those impulses because she's just as game as he is. And she asks a very loaded question. <laughs> Was Florian really as beautiful as they say? More beautiful than me? And Quoth manages to actually come back with a pretty good response. He says, she was Felurian, most beautiful of all, but for all that, she lacked your fire. Seven words. Both of those are seven words. So he was able to give sort of the objective description of Felurian while at the same time finding something unique about Losi for her to connect with. And then apparently they had a pretty good role in the hay about it. After he enthralled the whole room, much to the fiddler's chagrin, with a story that was mostly the story of what happened to him. It bears a passing resemblance. He also makes sure to take the opportunity to imply that Valorian found him to be a very adept lover rather than an adequate one. So yeah, he admits, I was 16. I might have been bragging a little bit. Although, in Quoth's defense... If you had an experience like that, the temptation to brag would be pretty strong. Also fair. And then to play into his whole Adimaru thing, story-wise, they are expecting a normal structure. Normal structure means I was given three gifts, but I wasn't given three gifts. So I'm going to make some bullshit up. So he does go on to say that his night was quite pleasant. And a little bit of the fae seeps through this because he says, Each woman is like an instrument waiting to be learned, loved, and finally played to have at last her own true music made. We've still got the rhyming language. And he says, Some might take offense at this, at the way that I see things and understand things, but those people do not understand love or music or me. And I like that as kind of an ending bit to that part of the saga. We are going to quickly transition from fey to like sword art type things with the Adem. And so I think that was a lovely capper. It does cap a little bit of how Quoth sees the world. He sees everything through the lens of music, whether that is relationships whether that is stories, whether that is life. He's going to always view it through that lens. So with that, I think we're at a good spot to talk about our Phrenemos of the week. Who do you have? This one's tough because like Valorian does the whole, if you love it, 
you will let it go. And if it loves you, it'll come back, which I do think is wise simplification. If it can come back, it will come back. But holding on to something too tight is a surefire way to incur resentment. So I think that there's that. I also do think that we should be employing a healthy level of skepticism. So the fiddler doesn't really fit exactly with the Fernimos, but like not just buying into every fantastical too good to be true story, I think is wise to a point, but you should allow yourself the ability to have whimsy or to have things be true that don't sound or feel true. Things can be true even if they don't make sense. Yes. So I don't really like him as an option. I'm not sure that I really have a true Frenemos to pick out of the story right now. I've got one. You do? Penny, the innkeeper. Mm. Because one, she is observing all of this that's happening. She does ask questions rather than make statements. And I appreciate that. One, she's able to recognize Kvothe for who he is, to vouch for his identity and say, oh, yeah, he's been through here. I recognize him. I know him. And two, to recognize that, yeah, he's definitely changed. And it's not just that he's grown a beard. Like she actually looks at him and sees into his mind a little bit when she looks him in the eyes. She's able to recognize the change there that goes beyond just, oh, yeah, he's got a beard now. She's also able to calm the tensions with the fiddler. You know, she's able to remind him, hey, I hired you specifically to entertain my guests, not fight with them. I need you to back off. These are my guests. We're going to have this civil like here. And she's able to calm things down and act fairly forcefully, even though she's way smaller than this guy. She displays a fair amount of wisdom, de-escalating tensions while also being able to see things as they are. So I think that's a pretty good for Nemos right there. I'll accept that, yeah. So that, it's time for our thing of the week. So right now it's heat wave season out in the Pacific Northwest where we live. Like today it's getting all the way up to like 99. Then it's going to be over 100 throughout the week. It's tough. It's a tough time. We're fortunate enough to have good cooling in our home. And good insulation. Our home, we lucked out. I'm going to say that the home that we live in is less than five years old and has really good energy standards and insulation. And also we are surrounded by trees, which does go towards cooling the area. So it's not just concrete. And it's also pretty shady. But I really feel for all the people because this area has a lot of air conditioning, but it's not standard. Especially when you're looking at older apartments and things like that. A lot of people may not have air conditioning built in. And we've also lived in places where it is definitely not standard. And getting up to this temperature would be pure misery. So... At the same time, when it's so hot outside, you really can't go outside safely. And so then the question is, how do you maintain activity? Because it is still good for us when we are able to get out and go for a walk or play Frisbee or just move our bodies a bit. Because sitting all the time, nope. No. So our solution has been to get up early in the morning before the sun has a chance to get high in the sky and walk around our neighborhood a bit and explore and move our bodies and just get some fresh air. Like we've actually been doing pretty good about going in the evenings after dinner, but it's still going to be so hot that we've changed our routine to be morning time, which works out because Sokka likes to wake us up at 4.30 because he's a deck. So rolling out of bed, going, I don't want to, and then putting on clothes that are presentable enough to be walking outside in, and then going for a stroll in the neighborhood, I highly recommend getting a chance to get out of your house, even if you have to be creative about timing. It was kind of pleasant for us to wake up early and wander the paths and sidewalks of our neighborhood. And we got a little bit of peace too. You know, there wasn't a lot of traffic. There wasn't a whole lot of people out and about or noise or anything like that. So we were able to just kind of 
enjoy talking with one another and just kind of experiencing a little bit of peace and quiet as we did so. And so, yeah, I encourage you, you know, while you're dealing with the heat, find some time to get out and about on your own time when the sun is not beating down, (laughs) when it's safer to go out. In the meantime, stay hydrated, drink plenty of water, and take care of yourself. And your pets. And your pets. So that, why don't we move on to the seven words? All right, so you have the books. I had plenty of choices here. Yes, especially in the second chapter that we covered. Yeah, so I've got, first of all, the iron was not an easy thing. I have nothing to leave you with. I have, then Quoth stepped in front of me. I have, if Quoth did not go, I may. The next day we looked for him. And I have Quoth's grand entrance line. I have found a better cloak since. You should beg the pardon of everyone here. We've got, that struck uncomfortably close to the mark. Yes. We've got, look at it. It's moving by itself. And I've got, you're blind drunk. It's just a breeze. <laughs> Lord, girl, what's the matter with you? Yep. Then we've got, how did you get away from her? There are actually multiple versions of that. Yeah, I caught that too. Like there were two of that and then there were two of something else. In pretty quick succession. I'll get to that. That's the first occurrence. And then she was Felurian, most beautiful of all. For all that, she lacked your fire. And then how did you manage to get away? Yes. There's also, or rather, I told them a story. Yeah, that's a good one, too. I think, though, the one that I like best is for all that, she lacked your fire. I like that too. It was called out as being a seven word sentence. It was called out as being the type of seven word sentence that will make a woman fall in love with you, which is the whole point of the trope within the books. There are a couple other ones that kind of make me smile a little bit. So I'm going to share a few of these as well. Okay. He's got a fey look about him, which is the other one that is said kind of twice because there's also there is a fey look about him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I thought he was going to piss himself. I it can't help but laugh. There's, I managed very little sleep that night. And the leaf was pure fabrication, of course. When he's talking about making up his three things he got from Florian to kind of pad his story out. Right, you got to have your boon count up to three. Because... Odd numbers are kind of a thing in the storytelling world. Prime numbers, especially. I didn't recognize him with the beard. We've heard enough out of you tonight. He's the one who took it all personal. She sort of convinced me to stay. Why wasn't I already kissing this woman? Which is kind of icky. I did more than see her friend. Quote talking about what he did with Florian. (laughs) Could be kind of icky, but I don't know that it is. Talking about his cloak, he says, it felt like wearing a warm breeze. The section is full of pretty good seven-word sentences, actually. Yeah, not just ones that are ironically good. So you have seven words from life. What did you pick? So we've been talking about kind of where our financial journey has gone in the course of not just our relationship, but in the course of each of our separate lives, you know. I've been in situations where I knew I was about to end seasonal work and I had $400 to my name and I took a rather substantial financial risk on something that completely changed my life was buying tickets for PAX. I had $400 tickets to PAX was like 60. That doesn't leave a lot for rent or food (laughs) or the trip I was taking to Spokane from Medford. It just, hmm, that was a very scary time, but I gave in to that impulse. And if somebody hadn't asked me to go to PAX, and if I hadn't said, but I have no money, and then was presented with, but you should go. But I'm like, I have no money, but you should go. I want to go. I'll make it work. That's in a few months. I I can somehow not just be completely screwed. And then I wasn't. And everything has worked out since that somebody being will. If I hadn't taken that risk, would have been a completely different story in my life. But we've been talking a bit about 
how 12 years ago I was in a financial state where it was very tenuous and how I was still too proud to really ask for help. And that now I'm in a financial position where I can help people and where my perspective is $100 isn't nothing, but it's also not a quarter of my entire wealth portfolio thing, whatever bank account. And when somebody is saying like, I had all of these barriers to even accessing the money that I earned. And because time doesn't care and bills don't care and the ability to buy gas doesn't care, I'm currently screwed. Can someone help me? And I can say, yes, I can help you. It, it feels really good to be able to help them, but it also feels like I had to kind of figure out how much help they would accept versus how much I was willing to give because I didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable, but I also wanted to make them feel comfortable because I don't want them to just have to say, you know, I need enough for gas money. I want to make sure that this friend of mine doesn't feel a massive amount of stress after getting gas. And you and I were talking and I was feeling about how because our financial situation has changed because I was always in kind of that I have to pay attention to all of my pennies up until about quite honestly about a year ago. We've had pockets of time where it didn't feel that way, but it wasn't like sustained. But now it's been pretty stable for the past year. And I was talking about how it feels weird to be the better off of my friend group, the most well off of my friend group, and how it kind of feels a little like I have some guilt around that. And what you said to me is, I don't feel guilty. I feel gratitude because we are in a position of privilege. We are in a much more stable position than we were a year ago. And even a year ago, we were still fine. We weren't quite in the $400 would financially ruin us bit, but we have been there individually and together. And I don't want to help my friends so that I can feel better. I want to help my friends. A, I want my friends to not have to need help. I, I don't want anyone to have to need that kind of help. In Phoenix's utopia, that wouldn't be a concern. We wouldn't live in a capitalist society where people can get ultra screwed and not have a home by one financial expense that is unexpected. Like that would not happen in my idealized version of what life could be. But reaching a place of stability, I am grateful. I am recognizing my privilege. I am recognizing that having the ability to use part of your yearly bonus as we stick it into a retirement account is unusual for our age group. It's not something a lot of people can actually do. Our generation is kind of planning to never retire because we're all forked. But having the luxury of being able to both put things into a retirement account and consider remodeling our bedroom, I am very grateful to be in a position where I can consider doing that. But I'm also grateful to be in a position where if a person I know needs help, I don't have to sit there on the sidelines going, I really hope someone can help you. I really don't want you to be screwed, but I can't do anything. I'm in the same boat. We're bailing together. I like to be able to be the person who can put the duct tape over the hole for a little while. And I am thankful that I was able to help her. I wish I could help so many more people. And I do give two causes to help people, but there is always kind of that, I wish I could do more. Yeah, I get that. And I think also, obviously, there are limits on the efficacy of private charity. And it is no substitute for a more justly engineered society. But even in a utopia where people don't have those sorts of problems that require immediate interventions like that, if people have that attitude of generosity and gratitude towards one another, it's going to make it a lot easier to share resources. It's going to make it a lot easier for people to find joy in that society. And so I think that those virtues are things that people should look to find ways to nurture and encourage in one another. So if you know someone who's in need and you're in a position to help, find a way to help. If that's 
I made them dinner. That's still great. Yeah. Or I invited them over, spent time with them, tried to find a way, even if you can't help financially, because I understand, like, it's painful to watch your friends suffer financially when you are also suffering financially and can't really help. But again, I'm very thankful for the position that we're in. Me too. And I am hopeful that we can continue to help share some of those benefits with the people in our lives. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 108 and 109 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of unexpected journeys. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. I do have a note. Uh, apparently, our podcast host no longer auto-publishes to whatever um, the Twitter thing is now. The it application just... formerly known as Twitter? Yeah, it, it doesn't exist. And so I'm sorry. But that's not going to auto-populate any longer. There's also an issue with it auto-populating to Facebook, but no one really follows us there. But, like, seriously, I have yet to completely crap the bed on getting things out on time. So hopefully y'all will remember we exist and your podcast app will remind you. And then writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and possibly get a more regularly updated Yes, We Exist still, you can join us over on our Patreon at patreon.com slash waystonepod. Um, yeah, it's probably the best way to keep track of us and in touch with us other than da -da -da -da, our Discord, which we are actually checking quite often. And I post memes to just kind of make everybody's day a little bit brighter. And if you have theories and you want to talk about them with us, we'll happily talk about them with you. Yeah, we chat with people there. It's pretty fun. It's a fun little community. Very little. Emphasis on little. Please join it. Well, that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Good job. Great gerb. Aw, Sokka wants to be part of the conversation. Sokka, what do you know about the wise man's fear? He's got nothing.